Any serious student of the Bible will at one point or another come across a passage of Scripture that raises a series of questions in his or her mind. Well, today we have a number of questions on specific verses, so stay with us because we just may answer a question on a verse that you've been pondering. This is the Question and Answer program with our Bible teacher, Dr. J. Vernon McGee, who for over 30 years answered the questions of his many listeners. And this broadcast is a ministry of the Through the Bible Radio Network. Now we begin our program with this question from a listener in Indiana, Pennsylvania. He writes, My friend would like to know the meaning of John chapter 20, verse 17. Can you please discuss this passage? It says, Jesus saith unto her, Touch me not. For I am not yet ascended to my Father, but go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. Let me say that the Lord Jesus, when he rose from the dead, we believe that he ascended and presented his blood as the sacrifice for the sins of the world, that any sinner now can come God's way, which is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and be saved. Therefore, at the time that Mary met him, he was on the way then to the Father's throne. He was on the way to present his sacrifice. And he did not want to be touched then as the great high priest, you know, of that day was when he went without the camp. No one touched him at all at that time. And this is, I think, carrying out that symbolism which reveals this high and holy mission that he has. And he says, go and tell my brethren that that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to ascend to my father. Then he appeared, you remember, to them later on. And he said to Thomas, touch me and see. He'd already made the trip and already presented his blood. And I think that is the explanation of that verse, by the way, the reason that he would say that to Mary at the time. He had not yet been to the Father's throne at all. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul speaks about a man who was caught up in the third heaven. So a listener in Upland, California writes, does this reference mean that there are different levels of heaven? Could you please explain this? The first heaven is the place where the birds fly, the birds of heaven. That's a scriptural term, by the way. They fly up in the air spaces up above us. That's where the planes fly today, is in the air spaces, by the way. And you can get pretty far up in the air spaces. I had the privilege, due to the generosity of someone, of flying over to England on the Concorde. We went up 57,000 feet, by the way. I didn't see any birds up there, but that still is in the air spaces, and that is the first heaven, by the way. And I do want to say that the flight was heavenly. And then there are the stars of heaven. 
stellar spaces out there. That's where we are sending a few little gadgets up there that will reflect a message and send it back down here on radio and TV. And that's up in the second heaven, the stellar spaces. And that's a vast space, evidently. Then there's the third heaven that Paul mentions, and that is the heaven where the throne of God is. He was caught up to the very presence of God. And that's where the believer goes today when he dies. Stone theology, as some theologians have called it, is the understanding that Jesus is the rock or stone. These allusions to Jesus thread their way through the Old Testament and are brought to light in the New Testament. So a listener in New Orleans, Louisiana asks, who is the rock mentioned in Matthew 16, 18? Now, I'd like to go back and read the entire passage, Matthew 16, beginning at verse 17. And Jesus answered and said unto him, that is, Simon Peter, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Now, there are two or three things there that need really to be explained. In the Greek, there's a play upon word. The word Peter here is Petros. And he says, and upon this rock, not upon Simon Peter, but Petria. That is, the word for Peter means a little rock. It could mean a small one that you would pick up at the seashore or pick up out in the woods somewhere. But the other, Petria, means a great shaft of rock, a great foundational rock, as it were. And he's saying, you are just a little rock, but upon this rock, this great shaft of rock, I'll build my church. And what is that? Well, that's the Lord Jesus Christ himself and faith in him. He says that he is the rock, and he that's on this rock shall be saved. Simon Peter understood it that way, and he used it and spoke of Christ as being the rock, actually the foundation stone on which the church is built, and not upon himself. And the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And what it means here is the way I understand it, the gates of death. That is the place where the dead go today, both saved and lost. Or that's where it did in Christ's day. But since his death and resurrection, the saved go to be with him directly. But here, it's the gates of death shall not prevail against it. And death is not going to get the victory over the church. That's the important thing. The great enemy is death, but death is not going to get the victory over the church. Now he says, I'll give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. In that day, we are told that actually the scribes wore a badge of keys at their side around their belt where they were girded and they wore those keys as a badge of their office that they had the keys to the scripture 
and what the Lord Jesus is saying now, and he's saying it not only to Simon Peter, but to the disciples, and beyond that, to the church. I'll take these keys, which are the interpretation of the scripture, I'll take these keys away from the scribes, and I'll give it unto you. That is, the church today has the keys, and those keys is today that I hath not seen, ear heard, neither hath entered the heart of man the things that God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit, and that the natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God, but they are revealed by the Holy Spirit of God. So that's the key that's been given to the church today. And I think that is the proper understanding of that passage of Scripture. As you may know, translations vary from verse to verse due to word choice and the manuscripts used in translation. But what if a whole verse is omitted? Well, that's the question that this listener in Orlando, Florida says. Would you please explain why some versions, such as the NIV, place verse 37 of Acts chapter 8 in the footnotes instead of in the text? Let me deal with this here and read Acts 8:37. It reads, And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And then it goes on to say, He commanded the chariot to stand still, and they both went down into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and be baptized again. And if you have a good reference Bible, it will tell you that verse 37 is not in some of the manuscripts, and it's owing to how the translator treats the manuscripts. If he thinks the manuscripts that do not have this verse are the better manuscripts, and that's the way the New International did it, why they took it out. I personally don't think it should have been taken out, And I personally do not think that it gives the impression that baptism is essential to salvation at all. All that the eunuch is doing is asking for baptism because he believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, for that is exactly what Philip had preached to him. So I cannot see that problem there at all, and I see no reason why it should have been left out of the Scripture. There are those that believe that it should be, however. And that's another thing that makes these new translations today rather confusing because many of these men that are making these translations are not really Greek scholars in the old sense of the term. I know even that the new Schofield Reference Bible was made by the committee meeting periodically in Chicago. These men had other duties, other responsibilities, but periodically they'd meet there and work on these translations. I rather feel like in this age in which we are living, that they're not men giving themselves to the study of the language and absolutely getting into the Greek language and the Hebrew like they should. It's a very cursory knowledge that they seem to have. And that is true of both Hebrew and Greek. Now here's a listener in Knoxville, Tennessee, who has several questions. Her first is, could you please explain what Jesus meant in John 9, 41? 
John 9, 41 reads, Jesus said unto them, If ye were blind, ye should have no sin. But now ye say, We see, therefore your sin remaineth. You know that a great many people do not know what sin is. They have some conception of sin, but they do not have the Bible conception of sin. And they are blind, therefore, to that. And by the way, we are bringing up a generation today that's very much like that, that have no moral scruples whatsoever. They are brought up totally devoid of that, even of ethics today. And as a result, they're blind to what is really right and what is really wrong. But now what the Lord Jesus is saying to these people that he's talking to, he says, if you were blind, you might have an excuse. But he says, you see, you know what is wrong, and therefore your sin remaineth. You're a sinner unless you do something about it. She then adds, how does the issue of revenge fit with Romans 12.20? Romans 12.20 reads, Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. You see, if you attempt to get revenge uh, against your enemy, God says, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. God says, I take care of that department. You don't know how to go about it to begin with. You do it with a great deal of feeling, and your expression of revenge would be probably lots worse than it should be. A great deal of emotion would enter in it. And therefore, he says, if you do the very opposite of doing good to your enemy, you'd actually heap coals of fire on him. You'd make his sin worse than it was and his judgment worse unless he did something about it. And then it might have the tendency of changing the enemy, by the way. And that, by the way, has happened. I noticed when I was a boy that farmers and people in our town would fall out one with another. And sometime, uh, no one man, he went over the other man when he was sick and took food to him and took help to him. And this man was reconciled to him because of that. That is the type thing the Lord Jesus is talking about. 1 John five sixteen and 17 speaks about a sin unto death. So the same listener asks her third question, what does sin unto death mean and what is a sin unto death? And I read that. If any man see his brother sin a sin, which is not unto death, he shall ask, and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not unto death. In other words, there are many sins that Christians commit that mean death to them. And Ananias and Sapphira, for instance, committed a sin unto death. The early church, it was a holy church at that time, and they lied. And that had a tremendous influence and testimony, and they died. There is a sin that, as a believer, that you can commit, and it means death to you. Death will come. And that explains the death of 
some Christians, but doesn't explain the death of all of them, of course. And there is, therefore, that sin unto death. And you say, well, what is it? Well, I think it's a different thing for different people. What is a sin unto death for you may not be for me. And that is the danger of living in sin as a Christian. I have seen in my ministry, for instance, a certain person that committed a sin, thought that they got by with it, and were killed in an accident when they were coming back from committing that sin, by the way. I always felt that person was absolutely had committed the sin unto death. And there is something that very few Christians seem to know about, and probably they ought to be told about it. In 1859, Darwin's book On the Origin of Species outlined basic tenets of the evolutionary theory. Ever since that time, heated debate has divided the church on this issue. A listener in Rogers, Arkansas, who seems to disagree with Dr. McGee's position on creation, says, Would you please provide a further explanation on your view of the six days of creation? Now, let me make a statement concerning the days of creation. I put forth my theory, and my theory is contrary to evolution. I rather go along with the men down in San Diego, Dr. Morris's group, the new creation group. I think they are very scientific. And then I understand that there is another group back east now. In fact, I think there are a couple of Englishmen that have come out with a, another theory of the creation of the earth that contradicts evolution. I'll be very frank. I think evolution as a science, and I don't think it ever was a science, but has passed as a science, I think it's in deep trouble today because a very intelligent man that a Christian and a scientist themselves are raising all kinds of questions concerning it. Now, let me then add this. Regardless of what viewpoint you take, if it's evolution, that's merely a theory. In fact, it is probably right now an exploded theory. The creation is the only one that I think that stands up because you have to go back. I have an article that I do not have before me from a scientist that I think is the finest thing I've read recently. He said that you have to go back to the time when there is nothing, and then you have to pass from nothing to something, and that passing from nothing to something is the real problem. Evolution cannot answer that, and may I say to you, nothing can answer that except there is a creator who passed nothing to something. He started with nothing, and he made something. You have to go back to that kind of a simplicity, or you can't begin at all. And therefore, the writer to the Hebrews says, by faith, we understand that this creation, these worlds that are now, they were made out of that which does not appear. That is, nothing was made into something. And how do you understand that? Only by faith, friends. You take that by faith or you don't take it at all. Now, as far as I'm concerned, I take it by faith, and that's the best answer there is today 
the evolution and to all of this crowd that come up with all kinds of theories. Nothing became something. And who did it? God did it. Now, if you got a better explanation than that, I'll be very happy to accept it. But up to the present, that's the best one that I've run across. Speaking about Abishai, one of David's mighty men, 2 Samuel 23.19 says, However, he did not attain to the first three. So a listener in Portland, Oregon says, Who were the first three? I, too, have wondered who they were. Verse 19 says about Abishai and also in verse 23 about Benaiah that he attained not to the first three. Well, I'm not sure that Abishai in 19 is included there also. I'll turn to the 23rd chapter of Second Samuel and just read verse 19. What you have there is a list of the mighty men of David, and three of them are picked out and are not named at all. It tells about the exploits of many of them, by the way. It says of Abishai here, was he not most honorable among the three? Therefore he was their captain, howbeit he attained not unto the first three. You see that Abishai was not one of the three. He was captain over them because he had done great exploits. And Benaiah is not one of them, we're told here. So we're not told who the three are. So when you ask me to name them, I'm unable to name them because David didn't give us the names of these three that are here. They must have been outstanding men, and they're probably in that list there somewhere. I'm almost sure they'd be in that list, but they're not pointed out as being the three outstanding men. It doesn't mean that they were given such an honorable post because Abishai was a captain over them, at least over one of them. Turning now to Isaiah 20, verses 4 through 5, this listener in Grand Rapids, Michigan says, Why was Israel afraid and ashamed of Ethiopia, their expectation, and Egypt, their glory? Well, may I say to you again, here we're talking about a different day and generation and about these that were enemies of Israel. And let me read Isaiah 24, 5 for us. So shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptians as prisoners and the Ethiopians as captors, young and old, naked and barefoot, even with their buttocks uncovered to the shame of Egypt. And they shall be afraid and ashamed of Ethiopia, their expectation and of Egypt, their glory. You see that Israel depended a great deal upon Egypt during a period of time. They were their ally, just as they are supposed to be today, an ally, Israel and Egypt. And here came the Assyrian and captured both of them and led them away into captivity and shame. And that's all that is said here. I mean, that's all that is intended here is that it was a shame to them because they had depended upon them. And yet they were put to shame when the Assyrians came and took them captive. In other words, Israel 
was on the wrong side at that particular time. And I think that's all that we need to draw from that, by the way. Well, with that answer, we come to the close of another question and answer program. We hope that one of your questions was dealt with on this broadcast. If not, we do have a number of really excellent resources that can assist you in your own understanding of God's Word. If you want a listing of many of our items, you can request a resource catalog anytime when you call or leave a voicemail message with your name, address, and the call letters of this station. Now, if you'd like to order a copy of today's broadcast on a single CD to have for your personal library or to pass on to someone who might benefit from Dr. McGee's response, contact us on Monday. I'll give you the phone number in just a moment. Or you can always go online and purchase it from our website by following the link to our bookstore. Be sure to join us this week on Through the Bible radio program heard every Monday through Friday on this station. If you'd like to take part in Dr. McGee's five-year journey through the whole Word of God, book by book and chapter by chapter, you can do so by adding your name to our mailing list to receive notes and outlines for each study and our monthly newsletter. To contact our offices for the catalog, to purchase materials, or to share your interest in this ministry, call 1-800-65-BIBLE Monday through Thursday from 6 a.m. to 3 p.m. Pacific Time. Or write to Questions and Answers in the U.S., Box 7100, Pasadena, California, 91109. In Canada, Box 25325, London, Ontario, N6C, 6B1. Or visit us online at www.ttb.org. Now we pray that God will answer all your questions and solve all your problems. Jesus made it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. This program has been brought to you by the faithful friends and supporters of Through the Bible Radio Network.